previously on Patient Zero. They can be stately and they can be cute. The deer are also considered a menace to health. They carry ticks which can spread Lyme disease. This one is Ixodes scapularis, so that is the deer tick. Uh, that's the one that is associated with Lyme disease. Borrelia burgdorferi. So those two mice were the species Paramiscus leucopus, and that's the white-footed mouse. That's the mouse that's, that's everywhere. When do they honk the horn? They didn't do it. It's the law. They're supposed to honk it three times and they leave the dock and they didn't do it. Last August, I got on a ferry and I took off towards an island off the coast of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. I was hoping for a horn, but apparently they only have to honk it if it's foggy, so I improvised. Trying to sound like a horn. Nantucket. It's a charming old whaling island, shaped like a flat boomerang, with a big tourist season, but a permanent population of only about 11,000 people. Take check. One, two. One, two. <laughs> I was there to attend a meeting at the local library, a giant Greek revival building called the Athenaeum. If someone walked in off the street, they might be under the impression that they had stumbled into an evening of live music. But then they might have second-guessed, once they'd seen the free shortbread cookies shaped like mice and listened to the lyrics. Giggling, wiggling, rolling around, can't do that no more. Everything fun that we used to do, mom makes us do indoors. Tall grass, short grass, running around, just want to jump in the leaves. Small fry bulls are red and inflamed. Now I got a brain disease. Why can't someone help us? All this pain just from a little tick. Why isn't someone on this? It's 2018, they mapped the gene. Please, somebody science this shit. This is local band Coco Vaughn. The organizers of this meeting were pulling out all of the stops, trying to fill seats for an important conversation about the future of the island. Thank you so much for coming this evening from a, on a beautiful summer's day to discuss ticks. This is one of the main speakers from the evening, Kevin Esfeld. I had already interviewed him in a studio before the event, and I gotta say, he knows how to give a very good soundbite. The West Coast has earthquakes, the Heartland has tornadoes, the South has hurricanes, and in New England, our natural disaster is Lyme disease. Kevin is a biochemist and so-called evolutionary sculptor working at MIT. And to understand what this meeting was about, you've got to know what a reservoir is. Not the kind that stores drinking water, the kind of reservoir that stores disease. So a reservoir is what we, what we think of when we say, where is the source of this disease in the environment? Black-legged ticks are not typically born carrying Lyme disease. They have to get it from something. And typically, they get it from feeding on a mouse during their very first blood meal. Now, mice themselves, these white-footed mice, they're not born infected either. They get infected when they're bitten by an infected tick. It's almost like a chick- chicken or egg situation. It is. So the more ticks you have, then the higher the fraction of mice that are going to be infected. Think of it this way. The mice are like mobile Lyme disease storage tanks scattered all over the forest floor. And the ticks 
are delivery trucks, carting around the bacteria, dumping it into the empty storage tanks, and filling up from other ones along the way. There are nearly 300,000, in fact, there's probably more than 300,000 cases of Lyme disease in the United States every year, according to the CDC. Nantucket is among the worst affected areas in the country, and therefore in the world. Why is there a problem? Well, it's an ecological problem. So we at MIT came up with this idea, which said, what would happen if we immunized the mice? The plan that Kevin Estvelt was there to talk about is called Mice Against Ticks. Kevin is something of a pioneer in genetic research, and his work has a lot to do with something you may have heard of called CRISPR. He's not talking about manually giving the mice a vaccine. He's talking about altering their genes and releasing thousands of modified mice onto the island. He thinks he can use genetic engineering to basically solve the Lyme disease problem on Nantucket, and maybe across the world. Best case scenario would be a 99% plus reduction in the rate of all diseases spread by the deer tick. A 99% reduction? It almost seems, well, you know the phrase. I'm curious what the panelists think conceivably could go wrong with this experiment and what the worst case scenario might be. The, the worst possible outcome is that it doesn't work. <laughs> we are biased. You should never trust an inventor to evaluate whether their technology is safe and effective. Because we're still human, no matter how hard we might try, we will fail. I'm Taylor Quimby. So far, we've spent most of this series exploring Lyme inside the body, but Lyme disease is part of a much larger ecosystem. And now, we have the tools to alter that ecosystem permanently. But just how far are we willing to go to fight the spread of Lyme disease in the wild? There is no silver bullet. There's just no such thing. On this, the very last episode of our series, we're zooming in on an experiment that might just hold the key to stopping tick-borne illness in its gross little tracks. And we're zooming out to examine the ways in which our collective actions have been unintentionally accelerating us headlong towards this disaster. This is not just a story about how an epidemic spreads through society. This is a story about how the spread of society can create an epidemic. This is Patient Zero. I'm not going to remember what the highest number is, but, you know, someone pulled off something in the range of like 30 to 40 ticks at once just from one outing in the field. (laughs) This is Dr. Jen Carberg, research program supervisor for the Nantucket Conservation Foundation. And yeah, she's seen a lot of ticks. It makes it makes your skin crawl to start to think about it. 
Nantucket is lined in beaches and covered in salt marshes, scrub oak, and pine barrens, tall grasses. But despite the beauty, it's not actually as biologically diverse as the mainland. There are fewer species of plants and fewer species of animals. Your ecology, your food webs, your net of the species that you have on island is almost always less than what you would see on the mainland. And that makes it the natural world's equivalent of a petri dish. Yeah, islands are amazing places to do research. Why? Because it's contained. The ocean is a natural border that limits the number of factors that can influence an experiment. So if you want to see how change ripples through the environment, you're more likely to see a direct cause and effect in an island ecosystem. You can introduce an element here, take something away there, and see what happens. But the experiment, if that's what this place is, hasn't always been conducted intentionally. For probably 200 years or more, there were no deer on Nantucket. That's according to the Nantucket Historical Society, or NHA. But then... So back in the 1920s, there was a buck that was found swimming, and um, the NHA reports that they were swimming out in the fishing grounds. According to local legends, fishermen pulled the lone buck aboard and set him free on the island. Oh, by the way, bucks sound a little bit like mutant zombie cows. Yeah. The story goes that people there felt sorry for this lone deer, which became sort of a fixture when people saw him around. Kevin evidently has heard this story too. So then a couple years later, someone actually went and got some does from Michigan, is what I've heard. They were brought from Michigan. And fast forward and you have a lot of deer on Nantucket. Like a lot of deer. Estimated numbers are between 45 and 55 deer, um, you know, per square mile. There are, roughly speaking, three main ingredients in the lime ecosystem. Ticks, mice, and deer. The thing is, deer don't do the same job as mice. They're what scientists call incompetent reservoirs. It doesn't mean they're stupid. It means they don't actually get infected with the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. And therefore, they don't cycle it back to the ticks that feed on them. Mice are storage tanks. Ticks are delivery trucks. Deer are neither. They're delivery truck factories. Their presence helps to multiply the number of ticks. Because infected adult ticks literally reproduce on top of them before dropping off to lay their eggs. So every female tick on a deer will lay something like 2,000 eggs. There's typically 1,000 ticks on a deer, meaning every deer you see is a walking million ticks in the next generation. Ugh. Man, that is a ton. That is gross. Yeah. You can't really watch Bambi the same way again. Gross as all these details may be, they present an opportunity. If all three of these organisms are really required to spread Lyme, well, that gives you three potential avenues to interrupt the cycle. And since an island is a petri dish, as we've discussed, well then, why not just remove one of the ingredients and see what happens? Well, it turns out that experiment has been done before on another island not too far away. Hello? Hey, is this Seth? Yes, it is. All right, my name is Seth Bogdanov. My family has been summering on Monhegan since about 1918. About 175 miles north of Nantucket, 
is a way smaller chunk of rock off the coast of Maine, Monhegan. It's about the size of Central Park. It's about a mile and a half by three quarters of a mile. And on this rock, there was an overabundance of deer. Um, I, there might have been 20 or 30, possibly as many as 50 at one time. According to one account I found, maybe as many as 100. And they were kind of scraggly at that. <laughs> they just, were. I, I, I have a picture somewhere that I took of one of them and it just looked, did not look healthy. When he was younger, Seth remembers pulling ticks off his ankles left and right. A few locals had even gotten Lyme disease. So, in the 1990s, a proposal was made to change the makeup of the Petri dish permanently. It was about 50-50. I mean, you know, people loved them because they were nice to look at. On the other hand, there was the health problem. And in the end, the, the health of the people on the island was more important than how pretty the deer were. You know, what What was the solution? I mean, so there's a, there was they a killed vote? Them. No, they killed them. It took three years. The villagers hired a sharpshooter to do the job. He killed 72 that first winter, 35 the next year. For some reason, the number of ticks actually went up. And then there was a final vote, 31 to 23, in favor of complete eradication. And, you know, I mean, the the worst I ever saw was I I saw half a carcass um, that was left out. The last six deer on Monhegan were killed in 1999. And a few years later, no infected ticks. It worked. Islands that have removed all of the deer, there has been a utter collapse of the tick population. And thus the number of infected ticks and the disease almost goes away. Is this a solution? It certainly worked on Monhegan, which to this day is deer-free. So why not Nantucket? Well, the bigger the deer population, the tougher the problem. So yes, if you get rid of every last deer, but it has to be every last deer because islands that have done very extensive culling have seen reductions, but not the kind of total collapse of disease transmission that islands that have removed all of them have seen. So you could, if you could. (laughs) Even though Nantucket is small, it's many times the size of Monhegan. Instead of 100 deer, there are thousands. Efforts to cull the herd have been controversial. So not only would it be logistically more difficult to eradicate all the deer, it would be politically unfeasible. But hey, there are two other organisms in this trifecta, right? Two more opportunities to stop the cycle. You can't kill all the ticks, again, for logistical reasons. And you wouldn't want to kill all the mice, in part because they play an important role in the ecosystem. But what if you don't have to? What if you can just make the mice immune to Lyme disease? That's what was being discussed at the library on Nantucket last August. Wait a minute. How are you going to introduce immunity among mice? And the answer is you have to release engineered immune mice. How many mice? Well, lots of them. So the number one question we get is, is this going to cause unexpected ecological effects? And the answer is, we don't know for sure. Ecosystems are complicated. We can't tell you for sure whether or not there might be ecological effects. That's why you have to start small somewhere else, a small, mostly uninhabited island. Kevin's plan is pretty modest as far as gene editing goes. Engineer mice that are immune to Lyme disease. 
breed those altered mice in the thousands. Release them, first on small, mostly uninhabited islands near Nantucket, as a trial, just to see if it works and to make sure nothing goes terribly wrong. And if nothing goes wrong, release them en masse on Nantucket, two to 300 modified mice for every 100 wild mice on the island. If that sounds a little crazy, you should know it's just the tip of the iceberg. As the evening's moderator, a writer for The New Yorker named Michael Spector said, It's silly to pretend that people like me are spending years here focusing on this issue just because it's about mice and ticks on Nantucket. It's about a fundamental way to change living beings permanently. Here's the thing you should know about Kevin Estvelt. He basically invented the ecological equivalent of the atomic bomb. I don't mean that this invention will destroy everything in a four-mile radius or result in a radioactive cloud. What I mean is that this is an idea that could change the world as we know it. And it's an idea that cannot be put back in the box. When scientists began to understand the power of CRISPR, the gene editing tool, they thought, wow, we can use this to alter living individuals. But Kevin took it a step further. He thought, what if we take this gene editing tool and build it, encode it into an organism's DNA? Any particular gene has a 50% chance of being passed on to the next generation, right? But with Kevin's new idea, what he calls the gene drive, you could use CRISPR to guarantee that some genes are always passed down. And if an animal was edited in this way and introduced into the wild, before long, the change could spread through the entire population, across the world. It would be irreversible and permanent. Think about it. What's to stop some scientists or company or government from going rogue, permanently modifying mosquitoes to stop one disease only to introduce another? or trying to make the perfect potato only to wipe out every other breed. Or even worse, using a gene drive on humans, designer babies, eugenics, the zombie apocalypse, for God's sakes. This is a Pandora's box, for better or worse. These frightening concerns are more or less summed up very well by Jeff Goldblum's character from Jurassic Park. <laughs> Gee, the lack of humility before nature that's being displayed here um, staggers me. I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. This idea has made Kevin Estvelt think very hard about his responsibility as a scientist. So I am personally responsible for introducing the world to a technology that could allow us to edit wild populations and thus their associated ecosystems. So that means I have a personal responsibility to ensure that we either don't use this at all or much more likely only use it thoughtfully and humbly. And I'm a little bit disturbed because we don't really have good mechanisms for developing technologies intended to alter the shared environment. So here's Kevin's secret. He's not just on Nantucket to combat Lyme disease. He's here to try and change the way we do science. If there was a different illness that presented the same opportunity, I think he would just as happily have tackled that problem instead. So his plan is to bring the debate out into the open, 
to have a conversation with the public before going to a lab and creating an irreversible Frankenmouse. He knows that he could do it. He's giving the public the chance to decide whether he should. If the Nantucket and the Vineyard and the Islands decide they'd rather not move forwards, if they vote all vote against it, then that's probably it. We will walk away. And that's the way it has to be, because the world could use a salutary example of a community saying no and scientists walking away. In order to do this, Kevin Estvelt has gone and done what very few people in his position would, and what is generally kind of uncommon in Lyme disease. He's assembled a steering committee and deliberately included at least one very vocal critic of the project. God, it was last year, and I just saw it in the newspaper. And because of my background, I went, ah, I'd like to see what this is about. This is Danica Connors. I met her at a coffee shop on Nantucket. She's a big gesticulator. I was actually worried she was going to smack the microphone out of my hands. She is a self-described Lyme literate herbalist and offers alternative therapies and shamanic practices for people living with Lyme or chronic Lyme on the island. To this day, I'm like, how do you put shamanism into a soundbite? The spiritual way of connecting to the environment and your relationship to it. That was, that was pretty good. Danica says that she has Lyme disease too. But after a year reporting on Lyme, I am confident that her story would lead infectious disease doctors to raise an eyebrow. I don't even know the beginning. And I have probably been bit that I remember anywhere from 10 times and up. All the tests are negative, straight across the board. Negative, 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 negative. Except for the fact that every full moon, right around it, I would come down with a raging fever that would knock me on my behind. And not just her personal story. Danica is putting some hardline rhetoric out there that is not settled science. She makes the spirochetes that cause Lyme sound like tactical smart missiles. There's no antibiotic, there's no herb, there's no nothing that is going to be able to remove them and kill them completely from the body. They're too smart, they adapt too much. However, what we can really do, which is astounding, is we can live harmoniously with them. Again, this is not the view of most scientists and doctors. And yet, at the meeting in the library, Kevin Estvelt almost gleefully pointed out Danica's involvement in the project because he knows that the only way to responsibly pursue action on this scale to change the environment is to include your skeptics. Um, So Danica has, has talked a lot about the project. And if you have any concern or criticism that you're uncomfortable raising with us, she is a local resident. She is on record as being skeptical of the project. If you are uncomfortable telling us directly or, or bringing it up here, please talk to Danica and she will make sure that, you're heard, that your concern is heard and responded to. And so far, that inclusion seems to be working in a way. Danica might not be endorsing the project, but she's not outright trying to scuttle it either. I've never seen anything like this. That they're being very honest, very open, and putting the choice into the community's hand. It is community-driven science, which is the only reason why I'm on this panel. Otherwise, I would have said no, because I don't approve of the program. Community-driven science. Given everything we've learned about how controversial Lyme disease is, it's pretty incredible to see this kind of cooperation. In fact, the meeting I went to, I noticed not one person brought up issues related to testing or chronic Lyme. For once, it actually seemed like everybody was on the same team. Is this a lesson for Lime World writ large? Or a sign that things are changing for the better? 
Disease leaves people feeling powerless, held hostage by things they can't see. And given the history of Lyme disease, you have to wonder if the only way scientific and medical authorities can gain trust is through this kind of patient, inclusive discussion. By empowering people that don't typically feel like they're given a voice. Of course, there are trade-offs to this approach. Kevin said something very interesting when he was speaking. He said he wanted everyone to have a voice. Everyone having a voice is not the same as everybody having a veto. At the library, bioethicist Ruth Faden raised an important point about the project and what it does and does not mean to involve the community. This isn't going to work if one person, right, holds it up. Including Danica, Kevin Esfelt may have anticipated and even circumvented some pushback to the project. But by giving the community a choice, he allows a potential solution to be watered down in ways that might not have the same impact. And already, the community has decided it's not comfortable with some of Kevin's ideas. You've got about 40% of people going, nope, absolutely not. This is GMO, I'm not touching this. As someone who does genome editing, if you say, we can, you can only use G- DNA from this one species, that's like making us work with our hands tied behind our back. But this is your environment, it's your call. And the community said, the clear majority said, only use white-footed mouse DNA, don't do anything else. And so that's exactly what we're doing. Kevin's grandest invention, the gene drive, is not going to be utilized on Nantucket. He's breeding immune mice, but that immunity won't always be passed down to the next generation. And eventually, in 20 or 30 or maybe 100 years, the number of infected ticks will start rising, and Lyme disease will return. This plan, which is not at all the atomic bomb I warned about, will only work on an island. In the real world, for the rest of us, it's gene drive or go home, Jurassic Park or bust. So this really won't work on the mainland. You are going to need the somewhat, at least slightly more powerful version. Islands make for wonderful petri dishes because there are fewer complications, fewer variables to consider. But like all scientific experiments, that's also their drawback. The real world, the vast complicated space outside the walls of a petri dish, is less predictable and harder to understand. If um, the Lyme gods wanted to create the, the maximum uh, illness, they would have plenty of deer, plenty of mice. That would produce plenty of infected ticks. Rick Ostfeld is senior scientist at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies in New York State. So, yeah, I think there is some truth to this trifecta. Um, it can get a little distorted when there's too singular a focus on those particular species. Why? Unlike Nantucket, where there are no foxes, coyotes, raccoons, no eastern chipmunks, no opossums or skunks, mainland forest ecosystems have a dizzying number of variables. Like deer, many of these animals don't get Lyme disease or don't exchange it with ticks as well as mice do. And so every time a tick bites one of these other animals instead of a mouse, it changes the equation a little bit, diluting the cycle of Lyme in the environment. With this many factors, the math starts to get out of hand. Research shows that if you increase the number of foxes, they eat more mice, and tick infection rates go down. If you increase the number of opossums and raccoons, animals that aren't as good a reservoir for Lyme as mice, 
more ticks feed on them instead of the mice, and the tick infection rates go down. But if you increase the number of coyotes, they scare off the foxes, eat the opossums, and tick infection rates go up. And that's just the first layer of complexity. Ready for the next? In an area with high biodiversity, lots of different types of animals. Where tick infection rates are already low, if you remove shrews, the infection rates go down even more. In an area with low biodiversity, not that many animals, where tick infection rates are high already, if you remove shrews, the same thing we did in the last scenario, the tick infection rates get even worse. Biodiversity is a huge part of whether and how Lyme rates increase and decrease in a given area, and it is just hard to measure. Have you been following the um, Mice Against Ticks project and some of the stuff in Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard? I have, yes. Um, there's some things that they're very much doing right. I think that they're. I asked Rick Ostfeld what he thought about the Mice Against Ticks project. He said the community driven aspect is really admirable. But he also said we've got to proceed carefully. Quite frankly, we humans have a terrible track record in anticipating the consequences of having new species. Uh, exotic species or exotic genotypes in a natural ecosystem. We think we can guess or hypothesize what the impacts are going to be, but we're often really wrong. We can do all the careful science in the world and still not know for sure what would happen if we immunized the world's mice to Lyme disease. And given that, you can't help but worry that people who have this perspective... The, the worst possible outcome is that it doesn't work. <laughs> ...are not using their imaginations. So the kind of control you're attempting is, uh, it's not possible. Listen, if there's one thing the history of evolution has taught us, it's that life will not be contained. Life breaks free, it expands to new territories, and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but I'm simply saying that life... Uh, finds a way. Coming up, we wrap up the series by trying to answer two final big questions. How did we get here, and where are we going? That's when Patient Zero continues. I want to tell you a story. It's the story of North America, particularly the area we now call New England, which a few hundred years ago would have looked a lot different. Well, kind of. There were still a lot of trees. Pre-colonial New England um, had a lot of forests, old-growth forests. This is Carly Spinarski, a biologist at the University of Maine. These were the days of wolves, of deer and moose and cougar, the era when billions of passenger pigeons would darken the skies of the continent the time of the Algonquian peoples. We presume that the Native Americans in the pre-colonial times probably got bitten by infected ticks and got Lyme disease. This again is ecologist Rick Ostfeld. Lyme disease has been around a long time, at least 60,000 years, according to research on bacterial genomes done by the Yale School of Public Health. 
So how come it took so long for us to notice it? Uh, European settlement came. Of course, a lot of resource extraction occurred. Resource extraction. The multi-purpose euphemism that in plain language means cutting trees and killing animals. Resources including animals and uh, timber. In the first couple hundred years of settlement, Europeans introduced new diseases, transformed the landscape, drove out or killed indigenous peoples, forests were raised and turned into farmland, deer were hunted to a fraction of their former population. Their natural predators, the gray wolves, turned to livestock for prey, and they were also subsequently hunted to near extinction. In a few communities in southern New England, these changes were really dramatic. So where the landscape was once about 90% forest cover, it went down to about 10% forest cover at the height of subsistence farming. And ticks? Well, they would have been having a hard time too. Then for a while, the risk of Lyme disease went down to zero or near zero in much of the Northeast. But then another shift, industrialization, and a new economic paradigm. And now we have reforestation. Farmland was abandoned across New England. The trees started to grow back. In these areas, agriculture is being transitioned back into forests. But this isn't the same world as it was before. The deer population is swelling, but wolves are continuing to be slaughtered. But then, in the 20th century, there's another thing that's changing the landscape. The automobile. We're building homes and roads, cutting back into the forests, and the neighborhoods cropping up this time. They're different. Do you, like, kind of hate the cul-de-sac? Well, I... I, uh... (laughs) (laughs) This is Shima Hamidi. I'm a person who... Um, I'm not a fan of driving. A professor of planning at the University of Texas at Arlington. And she has been studying the shape, the literal shape, of American housing developments. Scattered, single-use, only housing or residential area, extremely low density, and with the street uh, network types that is more of cul-de-sac versus grid street patterns. In the 1900s, Americans and American developers started to transform the way our communities branch out, leapfrogging across natural areas and then slicing odd shapes into the landscape. The land is inexpensive and it's cheaper and you can you know, buy houses that are larger. And so that really leads to uh, what we see now in urban sprawl, I would say after Second World War. And while that may have seemed convenient at the time, there are secret costs to this new lifestyle. It's more sedentary. People have to rely increasingly on cars. And there is an increased risk in getting Lyme disease. Because now, the forests have returned. Wolves are all but extinct in the Northeast, and the deer population has exploded. And all those little cul-de-sacs and leapfrog developments have cut up the forests and increased the amount of forest edge next to our homes. Here's Kevin Esvelt. The mice do best not in the deep woods, not in the undisturbed woods, but on the edges of forests. So when we encourage forests everywhere, but then we carve it up with roads and houses, we're maximizing the forest perimeter. And that means we're maximizing the amount of mouse habitat. That's why in many ways your risk of getting Lyme disease is higher near your house than it is in the remote parts of the Appalachian Trail. Remember way back in episode one, when I talked about the third point of the epidemiological triangle? 
It was the environment. And in the case of the Lyme epidemic, it's the point that we have been unintentionally sharpening for hundreds of years. From housing and transportation to white flight and agriculture, a dizzying number of factors have led us to maximize the number of deer, more than 30 million in America today. To maximize the number of mice by fragmenting forests in ways that push away predators. To minimize the other animals that would help dilute disease in the environment. And for all those reasons, we've maximized the number of infected black-legged ticks. This is the stage that was set for Lyme disease in 1975, when Polly Murray's kids were out playing in the woods of Connecticut. You know, there was only so much trouble you could get in playing out in the woods. The factors, the conditions, all sort of came together in the 20th century to make it a perfect time to be a tick on Earth. This is Mary Beth Pfeiffer, and she will tell you that there is one more powerful way that humans have given tick-borne disease a global leg up, a topic that seems kind of unavoidable these days. Ticks are moving to new places where they didn't live before. Now, is this a slam dunk? No. But there is a wide consensus in the scientific community that one of the prime movers and drivers of ticks in the environment is climate change. This is the central argument in Mary Beth's book, Lyme, the first epidemic of climate change. It's a big assertion. And so, not surprisingly, it takes a few steps to arrive at that conclusion. Let's start with movement. So a tick attaching to a wide-ranging deer can be picked up in one county and migrate over the course of a week during its feeding cycle to maybe two or three counties. Ticks don't travel far by foot, but they are nevertheless incredibly mobile. This is Daniel Sunshine, professor emeritus at Old Dominion University and author of Biology of Ticks. He told me that some ticks are also known to spread via the backs of livestock, which, by the way, gets shipped around the country on trains. But what really gets them around are birds. Did you know ticks can fly? Canadian authorities suggest that somewhere between 50 and 150 million larval and nymphal exodiscapularis are dropped off into southern Canada every year. Just Are they so, just, like, dropping from the sky? Well, no, when, the birds, when the birds come down to feed... Okay, so they step, uh, they step off, they land. <laughs> yeah, they land. I suppose they could drop off while the bird's flying, too. That's not out of the question. Wherever the hosts go, the ticks go. Dropping like bombs off the backs of birds into new territory by the millions. But historically, that hasn't always meant that they would survive. Previously, if a bird deposited a tick too far north, or say it fell off on a beach or in a bog its journey would come to an untimely end. Different ticks prefer different environments. Generally, they don't like it too cold, and they don't like it too dry. So this is where climate change comes in. Because now, with global temperatures going up, and many areas experiencing wetter weather, the ticks have more places to gain a foothold and survive the journey. Dan Sunshine says that black-legged ticks are spreading into Canada, increasing their range at a rate of 28 miles per year which means Lime World is spreading too. All of the confusion and concern, now you can read about it in the Calgary Times, the Winnipeg Sun, and the Montreal Gazette. Lyme disease is an equal opportunity condition affecting Canadians of all ages. What's your name? 
change? In the last decade, cases of Lyme disease have risen dramatically in Canada. I was first told that there is no Lyme disease north of Barrie. I got I so live. bad two years ago, my wife had to come off of work and... Uh, Moore says blood yeah. tests used to detect Lyme disease in Canada are also inadequate. We're seeing diseases that we never used to see, that we never were trained for. Uh, and I think part of that is because of climate change. And perhaps most importantly, the climate factors and the other factors I've mentioned in this episode, the ones that are helping to spread Lyme disease, they're helping to spread all sorts of other tick-borne pathogens as well. The um, Gulf Coast tick, it's called uh, Amblyomma maculatum. The Gulf Coast tick has been marching away from the Gulf Coast, and it can carry something similar to Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Then there is the Lone Star tick. That one spreads something called ehrlichiosis, and it's been creeping north for decades. All the way up into southern New England now. There's Babesia, anaplasmosis, the Powassan virus, and there are ticks and tick-borne diseases that may never make you sick, but could disrupt our lives in other ways. Amblyomma variegatum, the so-called uh, tropical bont tick, B-O-N-T. The tropical bont tick hails from Africa, but travels by feeding on migrating egrets, a bird that looks kind of like a heron. And doing that, this tick has made its way all the way to the island of Guadalupe, not far from Puerto Rico. It attacks cattle. It's the vector of a deadly disease called heartwater. Extremely lethal. The lethality for cattle is, is way up in the 80 to 90 percent range. And we're talking about islands very close to the Florida coast. All across the country, in the world, ticks are ambling into new territory. And as they do, we're discovering new pathogens, some that are very much like Lyme disease, but not quite the same, and others that are more rare, but more deadly. What other tick-borne pathogens are still undiscovered? We don't know. But I can tell you, this problem is going to get worse before it gets better. At the meeting on Nantucket, Experts were debating the ethics of how and whether to engineer mice to help fight Lyme disease. It was fascinating and important stuff. But one of the most memorable moments from that meeting was when an audience member asked a very practical question. What I'd like to know is what are the sequence of events and what's the timeline look like between now and when mice are in the field? Your modified mice. So I can, what I will tell you is the earliest possible date that you would be able to vote on whether to release these mice is probably seven years from now. That's the earliest possible. We got to keep in mind, we have to get FDA approval for, we have to make the mouse, we have to breed up a thousand of them for a small island field trial. We have to wait two full years for the results of that field trial, the independent study of ecologists. We need FDA approval, probably, or possibly EPA approval. We need state fish and wildlife approval. We need your approval. And at any point, the steering committee can say, nope, that's it, Nantucket's out, and we walk away. As we wait for solutions, even the most basic prevention measures, the sorts of things people are already doing in some cases, aren't guaranteed to help. Rick Ostfeld at the Cary Institute of Ecosystem Studies has been doing a five-year study on two types of household tick killers that could be used in backyards across the world. You would think we would know by now whether this is a good strategy, but not yet. No one has yet been able to reduce ticks sufficiently in the right places to the right degree 
to demonstrate a reduced incidence of tick-borne disease. If it's successful, then we have a, a recipe. If these two methods done so thoroughly and aggressively for a long period of time at the scale of entire neighborhoods, if they don't work, then maybe we don't give up completely on environmental control of ticks, but it would sure suggest that it's too tough a nut to crack and we're just not going to get there. Carly Spinarski is looking at development, specifically logging and forestry practice. How can we manage forests differently to reduce Lyme disease? We're looking at ground cover, for example. Like um, leaf litter? Leaf litter. Um, yep. We're looking at tree composition. But even with some data collected, she says it's too soon to make any predictions about what exactly would help. What if we just cut all the trees? <laughs> you're, you're laughing. I'm not. <laughs> Um, cutting all the trees. Well, it's, it's an interesting suggestion. Uh, I think that there's more research to be done before we go to that extreme management option. In fact, one of the only things we know that will actually reduce your risk is a fashion faux pas. You know, putting your socks over your pants, wearing long pants to begin with, and putting your socks over your pant leg, um, wearing high boots, um, wearing long sleeves. You just don't see that many people who actually do the socks over the pants thing. No, you don't. But it is something that's been shown to minimize. I guess it's, it's all about, it also come, when it comes down to human behavior, it's all about your sense of personal risk. And so if you're not that worried about ticks or tick-borne right. disease, then you, it might be something that you're just not that interested in as a behavior of doing. In the 40-plus years since Lyme disease was first recognized and named, we have come so far. We have learned so much about spirochetes and inflammation and symptoms and society. And yet, the best technology currently available for stopping ticks are socks and pants. As I've said before, the pace of science is slow. You may have heard about a new vaccine that's being developed by a European company. It's even been fast-tracked by the FDA. Frankly, I think this is the real fix the one that doesn't require genetically altering the world's population of white-footed mice. But don't get too excited. The earliest that drug may hit the market is 2025. If things keep going the way they are now, that means somewhere between one and a half to two million Americans will get Lyme disease before that vaccine becomes available. And 10 to 20 percent, hundreds of thousands of people, could wind up with post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. Will they get a voice? Will they be part of the conversation? Or like Polly Murray, will they have to fight to be heard? I felt that there was some, something there, but the medical profession said, well, there is no such disease that, that exists that has the number of symptoms that you are exhibiting. I said many times that the study of medicine is humbling. No matter how incredible modern medicine may be, it's worth stopping to remember, we are a long, long way from having it all figured out. The scientists have to be humble. Disease preys upon every aspect of human society. No matter how well we adapt to life on this planet, disease adapts with us. Keep in mind and keep the humility of we don't know everything. We don't know how it works. I don't think we have enough data to determine that. It's okay to tell patients you don't know. 
And no matter how many epidemics we solve, what health crises we put behind us, the work is never done. There will always be another patient zero. Holly Murray carefully recorded all of the symptoms and visits to the doctor on the calendar. We were all being diagnosed differently, you know, with uh, trauma problems or with, uh, I was even thought to be uh, a hypochondriac. Lyme resident Polly Murray, the first to bring the pattern of symptoms to the attention of medical researchers. I'm testing this and see whether it works or Patient Zero is produced and reported by me, Taylor Quimby. Throughout this series, I have gotten invaluable editing help from a number of amazing colleagues, including Justine Paradise, Jimmy Gutierrez, Hannah McCarthy, Nick Clark-Stanley Capadice, Annie Ropeek, Jason Moon, Todd Bookman, Jackie Helbert, and Corey Princell. All of you have helped to shape this series in ways big and small, and I can't thank you enough. Sam Evans-Brown is Patient Zero's senior producer. And aside from having critical reporting chops, he is a genuine delight to work with, and he routinely knows how to keep the anxiety in the room from getting too high. Thanks, Sam. Erica Janik is executive producer, who besides keeping me on track, shielded me from the work I could not handle and gave me permission to focus solely on the work that I could. Thank you, Erica. Fact-checking for this episode by Amy Tardiff. Without Amy's help throughout this series, I would have told a fair share of unintentional lies. Special thanks to Sarah Plord for the amazing graphics. She has forever ruined the color of lime Kool-Aid, so kudos for that. And if you haven't checked out our website, patientzeropodcast.com, you should do it, if only to see all of her amazing work there. It's really great. Maureen McMurray is director of content at NHPR. This series would not have grown so large if it weren't for her trust and faith that we had a story that's worth telling. Patient Zero's incredibly super cool theme was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. It is the rare earworm that I do not mind humming all hours of the day, so thank you, Ty. Additional music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Zach Nugent, Poddington Bear, and Disaster Piece. Credit music throughout the series by Deerhoof. Thanks to all of the listeners who contributed their voices via memos and emails for this series. You are why we do this. If you'd like to see more of this kind of work, make a donation, or at least tell your friends and leave a review because we cannot do this kind of work without your support. And here at New Hampshire Public Radio, we are doing our very best to bring you stories that are interesting, informative, and important. And we want to keep doing it as long as possible. And speaking of which, a final special thank you to everybody else at the station who helped make this series, either by contributing directly to the editorial direction of the podcast, or indirectly by doing all the essential behind-the-scenes work that goes into funding audio or keeping the tech working or doing any of the other millions of little parts required to do this job. I owe you all a debt of gratitude. And I mean it in the most collaborative sense when I say Patient Zero is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Patient Zero.